Chapters twenty three through twenty five of the Right Away by Gilbert Parker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter twenty three. The woman who did not tell. Oh, Monsieur, I am afraid. Afraid of what, Margot? Of the last moment, Monsieur le Cure. There will be no last moment to your mind. You will not know it when it comes, Margot. The woman trembled. I am not sorry to die, but I am afraid. It is so lonely, Monsieur le Cure. God is with us, Margot. When we are born, we do not know. It is on the shoulders of others. When we die, we know, and we have to answer. Is the answering so hard, Margot? The woman shook her head feebly and sadly, but did not speak. You have been a good mother, Margot. She made no sign. You have been a good neighbor. You have done unto others as you would be done by. She scarcely seemed to hear. You have been a good servant, doing your duty in season and out of season, honest and just and faithful. The woman's fingers twitched on the coverlet, and she moved her head restlessly. The curé almost smiled, for it seemed as if Margot were finding herself wanting. Yet none in Chaudiere but knew that she had lived a blameless life, faithful, friendly, a loving and devoted mother, whose health had been broken by sleepless attendance at sick beds by night, while doing her daily work at the house of the late Louis Trudel. I will answer for the way you have done your duty, Margot, said the curé. You have been a good daughter of the church. He paused a minute, and in the pause someone rose from a chair by the window and looked out on the sunset sky. It was Charlie. The woman heard and turned her eyes towards him. "'Do you wish him to go?' asked the curé. "'No, no, oh, no, monsieur,' she said eagerly. She had asked all day that either Rosalie or monsieur should be in the room with her. It would seem as though she were afraid she had not courage enough to keep the secret of the cross without their presence. Charlie had yielded to her request, while he shrank from granting it. Yet, as he said to himself, the woman was keeping his secret, his and Rosalie's, and she had some right to make demand. When the curé asked a question of old Margot, he turned expectantly and with a sense of relief. He thought it strange that the curé should wish him to remain. The curé, on his part, was well pleased to have him in the influence of a Christian deathbed. A time must come when the last confidences of the dying woman could be given to no ears but his own, but meanwhile it was good that Monsieur should be there. "'Monsieur le curé,' said the dying woman, "'must I tell all?' "'All what, Margot?' "'All that is sin.' "'There is no must, Margot.' "'If you should ask me, Monsieur,' she paused, and the man at the window turned and looked curiously at her. He saw the problem in the woman's mind. Had she the right to die with the secret of another's crime upon her mind? The priest does not ask, Margot. It is you who confess your sins. That is between you and God. The curé spoke firmly, for he wanted the man at the window to clearly understand. But if there are the sins of others, and you know, and they trouble your soul, monsieur, you have nothing to do with the sins of others. It is enough to repent of your own sins. 
the priest has nothing to do with any sins but those confessed by the sinner to himself. Your own sins are your sole concern tonight, Margot. The woman's face seemed to clear a little, and her eyes wandered to the man at the window with less anxiety. Charlie was wondering whether, after all, she would have the courage to keep her word, whether spiritual terror would surmount the moral attitude of honor. He was also wondering how much right he had to put the strain upon the woman in her desperate hour. "'How long did the doctor say I could live?' the woman asked presently. "'Till morning, perhaps, Margot.' "'I should like to live till sunrise,' she answered. "'Till after breakfast. Rosalie makes good tea,' she added musingly. The curé almost smiled. "'There is the living bread, my daughter.' She nodded. "'But I should like to see the sunrise and have Rosalie bring me tea,' she persisted. "'Very well, Margot, we will ask God for that.' Her mind flew back again to the old question. "'Is it wrong to keep a secret?' she asked, her face turned away from the man at the window. "'If it is the secret of a sin, and the sin is your own, yes, Margot.' "'And if the sin is not your own?' If you share the sin, and if the secret means injury to others, and a wrong is being done, and the law can right that wrong, then you must go to the law, not to your priest. The curé's look was grave, even anxious, for he saw that the old woman's mind was greatly disturbed. But her face cleared now, and stayed so. "'It has all been a mix and a muddle,' she answered. "'And it hurt my poor head, monsieur le curé.' but now I think I understand. I am not afraid. I will confess. The curé had made it clear to her that she could carry to her grave the secret of the little cross and the work it had done, and so keep her word and still not injure her chances of salvation. She was content. She no longer needed the helpful presence of Monsieur or Rosalie. Charlie instinctively felt what was in her mind and came towards the bed. I will tell Mademoiselle Rosalie about the tea, he said to her. She looked up at him almost smiling. Thank you, good monsieur, she said. I will confess now, monsieur le curé, she continued. Charlie left the room. Towards morning Margot waked out of a brief sleep and found the curé and his sister and others about her bed. Is it near sunrise? she whispered. It is just sunrise. See, God has been good, answered the curé, drawing open the blind and letting in the first golden rays. Rosalie entered the room with a cup of tea and came towards the bed. Old Margot looked at the girl, at the tea, and then at the curé. Drink the tea for me, Rosalie, she whispered. Rosalie did as she was asked. She looked round feebly. Her eyes were growing filmy. I never gave so much trouble before, she managed to say. I have never had so much attention. I can keep a secret, too, she said, setting her lips feebly with pride. But I never had so much attention before. Have I, Rosalie? Rosalie did not need to answer, for the woman was gone. The crowning interest of her life had come all at the last moment, as it were and she had gone away almost gladly and with a kind of pride. Rosalie also had a hidden pride. 
the secret was now her very own, hers and Masoud's. End of chapter 23 Chapter 24 The Signor Takes a Hand in the Game It was St. Jean-Baptiste's Day, and French Canada was en fête. Every seigneur, every curé, every doctor, every notary, the chief figures in a parish, and every habitant was bent for a happy holiday, dressed in his best clothes, moved in his best spirits, in the sweet summer weather. Bells were ringing, flags were flying, every road and lane was filled with caleches and wagons, and every dog that could draw a cart pulled big and little people, the old and the blind and the mendicant, the happy and the sour, to the village, where there were to be sports and speeches, races upon the river, and a review of the militia arranged by a member of the legislature for the Chaudier half of the county. French soldiers in English redcoats and carrying British flags were straggling along the roads to join the battalion at the volunteers' camp three miles from the town, and singing, Brigadier responde pardon, Brigadier vous avez raison. It was not less incongruous and curious when one group presently broke out into God Save the Queen, and another into the Marseillaise, and another still into the Malbrook Zen von Tien At last songs and soldiers were absorbed in the battalion at the rendezvous, and the long dusty march to the village gave a disciplined note to the gaiety of the militant habitant. At high noon Chaudier was filled to overflowing. There were booths and tents everywhere. All sorts of cheap jacks vaunted their wares, merry-go-rounds and swings and shooting galleries filled the usual spaces in the perspective. The curé, Emrod Signal the Signor, and the notary stood on the church steps viewing the scene and awaiting the approach of the citizen soldiers. The Signor and the curé had ceased listening to the babble of M. Dauphin, who seemed not to know that his audience closed its ears and found refuge in a well well or think of that or an abstracted you surprise me the notary talked on with eager gesture and wreathing smile shaking back his oiled ringlet as though they trespassed on his smooth somewhat jaundiced cheeks until it began to dawn upon him that there was no coin of real applause to be got at this mint fortune favored him at the critical juncture for the tailor walked slowly past them looking neither to the right nor to the left, his eyes cast upon the ground, apparently oblivious to all around him. Almost opposite the church door, however, Charlie was suddenly stopped by Philly and Lacasse, who ran out from a group before the tavern, and standing in front of him with outstretched hands said loudly, "'Monsieur, it's all right. What you said done it, sure. I'm a thousand dollars richer to-day. You may be an infidel.' but you have a head and you save me money and you give away your own and that's good enough for me he wrung charlie's hand and i don't care who knows it sacre charlie did not answer him but calmly withdrew his hand smiled raised his hat at the lonely cheer the saddler raised and passed on scarce conscious of what had happened indeed he was indifferent to it for he had a matter on his mind this day which bitterly absorbed him but the notary was not indifferent. Look there, what do you think of that? he asked querulously. I am glad to see that Lacasse treats Monsieur well, said the curé. What do you think of that, Monsieur? repeated the notary excitedly to the seigneur. 
The Seigneur put his large gold-handled glass to his eye, and looked interestedly after Charlie for a moment, then answered, "'Well, Dauphin, what?' "'He's been giving Fillion Lacasse advice about the old legacy business, and Fillion's taken it. And he's got a thousand dollars, and now there's all that fuss. And four months ago Fillion wanted to tar and feather him for being just what he is today. An infidel! An infidel!' He was going to say something else, but he did not like the look the curé turned on him, and he broke off short. "'Do you regret that he gave Lacasse good advice?' asked the curé. "'It's taking bread out of other men's mouths.' "'It put bread into Fillion's mouth. Did you ever give Fillion Lacasse advice?' "'The truth now, Dauphin,' said the seigneur dryly. "'Yes, monsieur, and sound advice, too, within the law, precedent and code and every legal fact behind.' The Seigneur was a man of laconic speech. Tut-tut, Dauphin. Precedent and code and legal fact are only good when there's brain behind them. The tailor yonder has brains. Ah, but what does he know about the law? answered Dauphin, with acrimonious voice but insinuating manner, for he loved to stand well with the Seigneur. Enough for the saddler, evidently, sharply rejoined the Seigneur. Dauphin was fighting for his life, as it were his back was to the wall. If this man was to be allowed to advise the habitants of Chaudier on their disputes, and going to law, where would his own prestige be? His vanity had been deeply wounded. It's guesswork with him. Let him stick to his trade as I stick to mine. That sort of thing only does harm. He puts a thousand dollars into the saddler's pocket. That's a positive good. He may or may not take thereby ten dollars out of your pocket that's a negative injury. In this case there was no injury, for you had already cost Lacasse. How much had you cost him, Dauphin? continued the seigneur with a half-malicious smile. I've been out of Chaudier for near a year. I don't know the record. How much, eh, Dauphin? The notary was too offended to answer. He shook his ringlets back angrily, and a scarlet spot showed on each straw-colored cheek. Twenty dollars was what Lacasse paid our dear Dauphin, said the curé benignly, and a very proper charge. Lacasse probably gave Monsieur there quite as much, and Monsieur will give it to the first poor man he meets, or send it to the first sick person of whom he hears. My own opinion is he's playing some game here, said the notary. We all play games, said the seigneur. His seems to give him hard work and little luxury. "'Will you bring him to see me at the manor, my dear curé?' he added. "'He will not go. I have asked him.' "'Then I shall visit him at his tailor's shop,' said the seigneur. "'I need a new suit.' "'But you always had your clothes made in Quebec, monsieur,' said the notary, still carping. "'We never had such a tailor,' answered the seigneur. "'We'll hear more of him before we're done with him,' obstinately urged the notary. "'It would give Dauphin the greatest pleasure if our tailor proved to be a murderer or a robber. I suppose you believe that he stole our little cross here, the curé added, turning to the church door where his eye lingered lovingly on the relic, hanging on a pillar just inside, whither he had it removed. I'm not sure yet he hadn't something to do with it, was the stubborn response. If he did, may it bring him peace at last, said the curé piously. I have set my heart on nailing him to our blessed faith as that cross is fixed to the pillar yonder. I will fasten him like a nail in a sure place, says the book. I take it hard that my friend Dauphin will not help me on the way. Suppose the man were evil. 
then the church should try to snatch him like a brand from the burning. But suppose that in his past there was no wrong necessary to be hidden in the present, and this I believe with all my heart. Suppose that he was wronged, not wronging. Then how much more should the church strive to win him to the light? Why, man, have you no pride in holy church? I am ashamed of you, Dauphin, with your great intelligence, your wide reading. With our knowledge of the world we should be broader. The seigneur's eyes were turned away, for there was in them at once humor and a suspicious moisture. Of all the men in the world he most admired the curé for his utter truth and nobility, but he could not help smiling at his enthusiasm. His dear curé turned evangelist like any methody, and at the appeal of the notary on the ground of knowledge of the world. He was wise enough to count himself an old fogey, a provincial, and a Simon pure habitant, but of the three he only had any knowledge of life. As men of the world the curé and the notary were sad failures, though they stood for much in Chaudiere. Yet this detracted nothing from the fine gentlemanliness of the curé, or the melodramatic courtesy of the notary. Amused and touched as the seigneur had been at the curé's words, he turned now and said, "'Always on the weaker side, curé, always hoping the best from the worst of us. I am only following an example at my door. You taught us all charity and justice,' answered M. Loisel, looking meaningly at the seigneur. There was silence a little while, for all three were thinking of the woman of the hut at the gate of the seigneur's manor. On this topic M. Dauphin was not voluble. His original kindness to the woman had given him many troubled hours at home, for Madame Dauphin had construed his human sympathy into the dark and carnal desires of the heart, and his truthful eloquence had made his case the worst. A miserable sentimentalist, the notary was likely to be misunderstood forever, and one or two indiscretions of his extreme youth had been a weapon against him through the long years of a blameless married life. He heaved a sigh of sympathy with the curé now. "'She has not come back yet,' he said to the seigneur. "'No sign of her. She locked up and stepped out, so my housekeeper says. About the time—the day of old Margot's funeral,' interposed the notary. She'd had a letter that day, a letter she'd been waiting for, and abroad she went. Alas, the flyaway, from bad to worse, I fear. Ah, me!' The seigneur turned sharply on him. "'Who told you she had a letter that day for which she had been waiting?' he said. "'Monsieur Evanterelle.' The seigneur's face became sterner still. "'What business had he to know that she received a letter that day?' "'He is postmaster,' innocently replied the notary. "'He is the devil,' said seigneur tartly. "'I beg your pardon, curé, but it is Evanterelle's business not to know what letters go to and fro in that office.' He should be blind and dumb, so far as we all are concerned. "'Remember that Evanterel is a cripple,' the curé answered gently. "'I am glad, very glad, it was not Rosalie.' "'Rosalie has more than usual sense for her sex,' gruffly but kindly answered the seigneur, a look of friendliness in his eyes. "'I shall talk to her about her father. I can't trust myself to speak to the man.' "'Rosalie is down there with Madame Dauphin,' said the notary, pointing. "'Shall I ask her to come?' The seigneur nodded. He was magistrate and magnate, and he was the guarantor of the post-office, and of Rosalie and her father. His eyes fixed in reverie on Rosalie. 
he and the cure passively waited her approach. She came over pale and a little anxious, but with a courageous look. She had a vague sense of trouble, and she feared it might be the little cross, that haunting thing of all these months. When she came near the cure greeted her courteously, and then, taking the notary by the arm, led him away. The seigneur and Rosalie being left alone, the girl said, "'You wish to speak with me, monsieur?' The seigneur scrutinized her sharply. Though her color came and went, her look was frank and fearless. She had had many dark hours since that fateful month of April. At night, trying to sleep, she had heard the ghostly footsteps in the church which had sent her flying homeward. Then there was the hood. She had waited on and on, fearing word would come that it had been found in the churchyard, and that she had been seen putting the cross back upon the church door. As day after day passed, she had come at length to realize that, whatever had happened to the hood, she was not suspected. Yet the whole train of circumstances had a supernatural air, for the curé and Joe Portugais had not made public their experience on that fateful night. She had been educated in a land of legend and superstition, and a deep impression had been made upon her mind, giving to her other new emotions a touch of pathos, of imagination, and adding character to her face. The old Signor stroked his chin as he looked at her. He realized that a change had come upon her, that she had developed in some surprising way. "'What has happened? Who has happened, Mademoiselle Rosalie?' he asked. He had suddenly made up his mind about that look in her face. He thought it the woman in her which answers to the call of man, not perhaps any particular man, but man the attractive influence, the compliment. Her eyes dropped, then raised frankly to his. I don't know, adding with a quick humor, for he had been very friendly with her, and joked with her in his dry way all her life. Do you, monsieur? He pulled his nose with a quick gesture habitual to him, and answered slowly and meaningly. "'The government's a good husband and pays regular wages, mademoiselle. I'd stick to government.' "'I am not asking for a divorce, monsieur.' He pulled his noise again delightfully. So many people were pathetically in earnest in Chaudier. Even the curé's humor was too medieval and obvious. He had never before thought Rosalie so separate from them all. All at once he had a new interest in her. His cheek flushed a little, his eye kindled, humor relaxed his lips. "'No other husband would intrude so little,' he rejoined. "'True, there's little love lost between us, monsieur.' She felt exhilaration in talking with him, a kind of joy in measuring word against word. Yet a year ago she would have done no more than smile respectfully and give a demure reply if the seigneur had spoken to her like this. The Signor noted the mixed emotions in her face and a delicate alertness of expression. As a man of the world, he was inclined to believe that only one kind of experience can bring such look to a woman's face. He saw in her the awakening of the deeper interests of life, the tremulous apprehension of nascent emotions and passions which, at some time or other, give beauty and importance to the nature of every human being. It did not occur to him that the tailor, the mysterious figure in the parish, might be responsible. He was observant but not imaginative. He was moved by what he saw, in a quiet, unexplicable manner. 
the government is the best sort of husband. From the other sort you would get more kisses and less haypence, he continued. That might be a satisfactory balance sheet, monsieur. Take care, Mademoiselle Rosalie, he rejoined half seriously, that you don't miss the haypence before you get the kisses. She turned pale in very fear. What was he going to say? Was the post office to be taken from them? She came straight to the point. What have I done wrong, monsieur? I've never kept the mail stage waiting. I've never left the mail bag unlocked. I've never been late in opening the wicket. I've never been careless, and no one's ever complained of a lost letter. The seigneur saw her agitation and was sorry for her. He came to the point as she had done. We will have you made postmistress, you alone, Rosalie Evanturel. I've made up my mind to that. But you'll promise not to get married, eh? Anyhow, there's no one in the parish for you to marry. You're too well-born, and you've been too well-educated for a habitant's wife, and the curé and I can't marry you. He was not taken back to see her flush deeply, and it pleased him to see this much life rising to his own touch, this much revelation to give his mind a new interest. He had come to that age when the mind is surprised to find that the things that once charmed charm less, and the things once hated are less acutely repulsive. He saw her embarrassment. He did not know that this was the first time that she had ever thought of marriage since it ceased to be a dream of girlhood, and, by reason of thinking much on a man, had become a possibility, which, however, she had never confessed to herself. Here she was faced by it now, in the broad open day, a plain hard statement, unrelieved by aught save the humor of the shrewd eyes bent upon her. She did not answer him at once. "'Do you promise not to marry so useless a thing as man, and to remain true to the government?' he continued. "'If I wished to marry a man, I should not let the government stand in my way,' she said in brave confusion. "'But do you wish to marry any man?' he asked abruptly, even petulantly. "'I have not asked myself that question, monsieur, and should you ask it unless,' she said, and paused with as pretty and whimsical a glance of merriment as could well be. He burst out laughing at the swift turn she had given her reply, and at the double suggestion. Then he suddenly changed. A curious expression filled his eyes. A smile, almost beautiful, came to his lips. "'Pon my honor," he said in a low tone, "'you have me caught. And I beg to say, I beg to say,' he added, with a flush mounting in his own face, a sudden inspiration in his look, that if you do not think me too old and crabbed and ugly and can endure me, I shall be profoundly happy if you will marry me, Rosalie. He stood upright, holding himself very hard, for this idea had shot into his mind all in an instant, though unknown to himself. It had been growing for years, cherished by many a kind act to her father and by a simple gratitude on her part. He had spoken without feeling the absurdity of the proposal. He had never married, and he was unprepared to make any statement on such a theme. But now, having made it somehow, he would stand by it in spite of any and all criticism. He had known Rosalie since her birth, her education was as good as a convent could secure, she was the granddaughter of a noble seigneur, and here she was, as fine a type of health, beauty, and character as man could wish, and he was only fifty. 
life was getting lonelier for him every day, and after all, why should he leave distant relations and the church his worldly goods? All this flashed through his mind as he waited for her answer. Now it seemed to him that he had meant to say this thing for many years. He had seen an awakening in her. He had suddenly been awakened himself. "'Mansour, Mansour,' she said in a bewildered way, "'do not amuse yourself at my expense.' "'Would it be that, then?' he said, with a smile, behind which there was determination and self-will. "'I want you to marry me. I do with all my heart. You shall have those haypence and the kisses, too, if so be you will take them, or not, as you will, Rosalie.' "'Mansour,' she gasped, for something caught in her throat, and the tears started to her eyes. "'Ask me to forget that you ever said those words. Oh, Monsieur, it is not possible. It never could be possible. I am only the postmaster's daughter.' "'You are my wife, if you will but say the word,' he answered. "'And I as proud a husband as the land holds.' "'You were always kind to me, Monsieur,' she rejoined, her lips trembling. "'Won't you be so still?' "'I am too old,' he asked. "'Oh, no, it is not that,' she replied. You have as good manners as my mother had. You need not fear comparison with any lady in the land. Have I not known you all your life? I know the way you have come, and your birth is as good as mine. Ah, it is not that, Monsieur. I give you my word that I do not come to you because no one else would have me, he said with a curious simplicity. I never asked a woman to marry me, never. You are the first. There was talk once, but it was all false. I never meant to ask any one to marry me, but I have the wish now which I never had in my youth. I thought best of myself always. Now I think, I think better of you than, oh, Monsieur, I beg of you, no more. I cannot, oh, I cannot. You, but no, I will not ask you, Mademoiselle. If you have someone else in your heart, or you want someone else there, that is your affair, not mine, undoubtedly. I would have tried to make you happy you would have had peace and comfort all your life. You could have trusted me, but there it is. He felt all at once that he was unfair to her, that he had thrust upon her too hard a problem in too troubled an hour. "'I could trust you with my life, Monsieur Rixignol,' she replied, "'and I love you in a way that a man may be loved to no one's harm or sorrow. It is true that.' She raised her eyes to his simply, trustingly, he looked at her steadily for a moment. "'If you change your mind.' She shook her head sadly. "'Good, then,' he went on, for he thought it wise not to press her now, though he had no intention of taking her no as final. "'I'll keep an eye on you. You'll need me some day soon. I can do things that the curate can't, perhaps.' His manner changed still more. "'Now to business,' he continued. "'Your father has been talking about letters received and sent from the post-office.' that is punishable. I am responsible for you both, and if it is reported, if the woman were to report it, you know the letter I mean, there would be trouble. You do not talk. Now I am going to ask the government to make you sole postmistress, with full responsibility. Then you must govern your father. He hasn't as much sense as you. Monsieur, we owe you so much. I am deeply grateful, and whatever you do for us, you may rely on me to do my duty. They could scarcely hear each other speak now, for the soldiers were coming nearer, and the fife and drum bands were screeching, Louis the King was a soldier. 
then you will keep the government as your husband he asked with forced humour as he saw the curate and the notary approaching it is less trouble signor she answered with a smile of relief emra signal turned to the curate and the notary i have just offered mademoiselle a husband she might rule in place of a government that rules her and she has refused he said in the cure's ear with a dry laugh she's a sensible girl is rosalie said the cure not apprehending the soldiers were now opposite the church and riding at their head was the battalion colonel also member of the legislature they all moved down and rosalie disappeared in the crowd as the seigneur and the cure greeted the colonel the latter said at luncheon i'll tell you one of the bravest things ever seen happened half an hour ago at the red ravine man who did it wore an eyeglass said he was a tailor End of chapter twenty four chapter twenty five the colonel tells his story the colonel had lunched very well indeed he had done justice to every dish set before him he had made a little speech congratulating himself on having such a well-trained body of men to command and felicitating chaudiere from many points of view he was in great good humour with himself and when the notary asked him it was at the manor with the soldiers resting on the grass without about the tale of bravery he had promised them he brought his fist down on the table with great intensity but little noise and said chaudiere may well be proud of it i shall refer to it in the legislature on the question of roads and bridges there ought to be a stone fence on that dangerous road by the red ravine have i your attention he stood up for he was an excitable and voluble colonel and he loved oration as a cat does milk with a knife he drew a picture of the locale on the tablecloth here i was riding on my sorrel all my noble fellows behind the fife and drums going as at louisbourg that day marshal adour united to manliness and local pride follow me here we were red ravine left stump fences and waving fields of grain right from military point of view bad position ravine stump fence brave soldiers in the middle food for powder catch it see he emptied his glass drew a long breath and again began the carving-knife cutting a rhetorical path before him i was engaged upon the military problem demonstration in force no scouts ahead no rear-guard ravine on the right stump fence on the left redcoats fife and drum band concealed enemy follow me observant mind always sees problems everywhere unresting military genius accustoms intelligence to all possible contingencies stand what i mean the seigneur took a pinch of snuff and the cure whose mind was benevolent listened with the gravest interest at the juncture when in my mind's eye i saw my gallant fellows enfiladed with a terrible fire caught in a trap and i despairing spurring on to die at their head have i your attention just at that moment there appeared between the ravine and the road ahead a man he wore an eyeglass he seemed an unconcerned spectator of our movements so does the untrained unthinking eye look out upon destiny not far away was a wagon in it a man wagon bisecting our course from a crossroad he drew a line on the tablecloth with a carving knife and the notary said yes yes the concession road so messieurs there were we a battalion and a fife of drum band there was the man with the eyeglass the indifferent spectator yet the engine of fate there was the wagon a model horse and a man driving 
and catch it? The mottled horse took fright at our band, which at that instant strikes up the chevalier drew his saber. He shies from the road with a leap, the man falls backwards into the wagon, and the reins drop. The horse dashes from the road into the open and rushes on to the ravine. What good now to stop the fifes and drums? Follow me? What can we, an armed force, bandoliered, knapsack, sordid, rifled, impetuous, brave, what can we do before this tragedy? The man in the wagon senseless, the flying horse, the ravine, death. How futile the power of man! Stand what I mean? Why didn't your battalion shoot the horse? said the seigneur dryly, taking a pinch of snuff. Monsieur, said the colonel, see the irony, the implacable irony of fate. We had only blank cartridge. But see you, here was this one despised man with an eyeglass, a tailor. Takes nine tailors to make a man, between the ravine and the galloping tragedy. His spirit arrayed itself like an army with banners, prepared to wrestle with death as Jacob wrestled with his shadow all the night seer le curé. The curé bowed. The notary shook back his oiled locks in excitement. Awoke a whole man, nine nights as in Adam, in the obscure soul of the tailor, and, rushing forward, he seized the model horse by the bridle as he galloped upon the chasm. The horse dragged him on, dragged him on, on, on. We, an army, so to speak, stood and watched the tailor and the tragedy. All seemed lost but by the decree of fate. The will of God, said the curé softly. By the great decree the man was able to stop the horse not a half-dozen feet from the ravine. The horse and the insensible driver were spared death death. So, messieurs, does bravery come from unexpected places, see? The seigneur, the curé, and even the notary clapped their hands and murmured praises of the tailor-man. But the colonel did not yet take his seat. But now mark the sequel, he said. As I galloped over I saw the tailor look into the wagon and turn away quickly. He waited by the horse till I came near, and then walked off without a word. I rode up and tapped him with my sword upon the shoulder. "'A noble deed, my good man,' said I. "'I approve of your conduct, and I will remember it in the legislature when I address the committee of the whole house on roads and bridges.' What do you think was his reply to my affable words? When I tapped him approvingly on the shoulder a second time, he screwed his eyeglass in his eye, and with no emotion, though my own eyes were full of tears, he said in a tone of affront, look after the man there, constable, and pointed to the wagon. Constable, mon dieu, gross manners even for a tailor. I had not thought his manners bad, said the curé, as the colonel sat down, gulped a glass of brandy and water, and mopped his forehead. A most remarkable tailor, said the seigneur, peering into his snuff-box. And the driver of the model horse, asked the notary. Knocked senseless. One of my captains soon restored him, he followed us into the village. He is a quack doctor. I suppose he is now selling tinctures, pulling teeth, and driving away rheumatics. He gave me his card. I told him he should leave one on the tailor. With a flourish he threw a professional card upon the table before the curé. The curé picked it up and read, John Brown, B.A.M.D., healer of ailments that defy the ordinary skill of ordinary medical men. Rheumatism, sciatica, headache, toothache, asthma, ague, pleurisy, gout, and all chronic diseases yield instantly to the power of his medicines. Dr. Brown will publicly treat the most stubborn cases, laying himself open to the derision of mankind 
if he does not instantly give relief and benefit. His whole career has been a blessing to his fellows, and his journey now through this country, fresh from his studies in the Orient, is to introduce his remedies to a suffering world for the conquest of malady not for personal profit. John Brown, B.A., M.D., Specialist in Chronic Diseases and General Practitioner. End of Chapter 25 Recording by Tom Weiss TomsAudiobooks.com